Well, as we continue this morning in Matthew's gospel, we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we get to kick off something really, really fun. We get to kick off the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you love Jesus? Quick show of hands, really dumb question, feel like you're in Sunday school. How many of you would like to hear Jesus' favorite sermon, his best sermon, his most powerful sermon? That's where we get to be. Yeah, thank you, right? Like, I feel like I should just read this, close the book, amen, we're going home, right? Like, there is a certain arrogance. I see, a, I see someone cheering back there. Right? Like, I get it. I get it. Can we be honest? There's a certain arrogance it feels like in trying to preach a sermon of Jesus's and then explain it. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing. He is good. He is faithful. His spirit illuminates and guides and warms, and it shows the light that is held out for us. So as we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we continue to look at Jesus' kingdom. We continue to look at the theme of discipleship and see how we are disciples in his kingdom. And this morning, we get to start a two-week sermon series on blessing, on blessing. Anybody want to feel blessed? Anyone want to not feel blessed? Dumb question, right? Think about the way we use the word blessing in our society. When somebody sneezes, what do we say? bless you, but do we mean it? Do we really think about it? I don't. It's just like a conditioned response. How else do we use the word bless? I know many pastors whose little sign-off tag on an email will go, blessings, comma, their name. How does a politician end most speeches? I'm so-and-so, and I'm running for office. Good night, and God bless, or God bless America. How many of you know about Texans? Anybody know a thing or two about Texans? Yes, when I was in Texas, we had a phrase. What's that phrase? Go ahead, say it. Bless your heart. Bless your heart is a great phrase, right? It's very versatile. It's like a Leatherman. It's like a Swiss Army knife, right? Like when a little kid falls down, skins his or her knee, runs to grandma, what does grandma say? Oh, bless your heart, come here. And it's very sincere. But if you call grandma a couple years later and say, grandma, I think I did something stupid, grandma will say, um, Okay, what did you do? And you tell grandma the stupid thing you did. What does grandma say? Oh, bless your heart. Right? It's a very versatile, very handy phrase. It's like the word y'all, right? There you go. So many of us are looking for the good life, for the charmed life, and for the blessed life. I mean, think about it, right? Think about the cynic towards not just Christianity, but faith in general. What's their criticism? Religion is just an age-old search for the good life, and all the world's different religions are just trying to explain to you how to get the good life, and at the end of the day, they're all saying the same thing. Sound familiar? Right? Think about our different governmental systems and why some groups of people choose one system over another, right? Like here in the United States, we rebelled, 1776, did a thing against monarchy. Why? Because we said personal liberty and freedoms matter. They matter so much that if you pursue that, if you value that, if you treasure that, people will go and they'll have the opportunity to build the good life or the blessed life. Fast forward to 1917, what happens in Moscow? What happens in St. Petersburg, Russia? The Bolsheviks lead a revolution, and what are they saying? The government needs to control all of the resources and distribute them out fairly. This is called 
communism, yes, Leninism, Marxism, communism, right? And that's how we will get the good life. It'll be a, a worker's utopia. We're set up for conflict as we look for the good life or the blessed life. That's kind of cerebral. That's kind of over there and out there. Let's bring this home. How many of us are looking for the blessed life? How many of us, how many of you are like me, where you feel caught up in the rat race? It feels like it's never going to end. Life is a series of groundhog days strung together as you're up at five to get the kids out the door, to do this, to go on. It may be cleaning, it may be work, I don't know what it is, but man, oh man, as we seek the good life, is anyone here today feeling tired? Anyone? Yeah, thank you. Love it, love it. Y'all are getting really good at response. I love this. Anyone else? Not just tired, but maybe worried, anxious. Where is the next bill for school, for utilities, the mortgage, the rent? Where is that going to come? How are we going to pay it? How are we going to make good on it? There's anxieties, there's worries as we chase the good life. We need good news. We need to know that we are blessed, there is blessing, and that we actually stand in a state of blessedness. That's what we find as we turn to our text this morning. As Jesus kicks off the Sermon on the Mount, the most clear uh, ethical theological manifesto that he could ever preach. He starts with the theme of grace. He starts with the theme of blessing. And man, oh man, does he take these newly formed disciples. And he says, here is how your life has changed. And here is how it is good. Here is how there is blessing. Jesus gives us a vision of the blessed life. How does Jesus give us a vision of the blessed life, of the good life? How does he do it? Here's how he does it. He gives us eight hallmarks, eight characteristics that should mark any one of his subjects, any one of his disciples. And this morning, we're going to look at three of them, and we're going to see how when these hallmarks enter into our life, become a part of our identity, become naturally who we are, and when we cultivate those, there really is a blessed path that we are walking down. So let's take stock this morning. Let's look at these hallmarks. Let's look at these characteristics of kingdom life, and let's see the path of blessedness. Let's ask, are we aligned with this path? And ask, where do we get the strength and the motivation to stay on this path. Here's where we're going this morning. Let's go ahead. Let's read from the text. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Grace, this is the word of the Lord. And there is blessing. There is blessedness in these words. Now, as we break down the first three this morning, I know I read four, but we're looking at the first three. That's all we really have time for. As we look at these, I need to give you a quick word on how to understand what we call these beatitudes. 
You see, there's a temptation to read these and say, if I make myself poor in spirit, if I go and I seek out mourning, if I make myself more meek, then God owes me, right? Like I put the quarter of effort into the gumball machine and God must dispense a gumball of, of comfort of this earth, of his kingdom. That is not the way we need to read these. I think sometimes we even do it subconsciously and don't even realize we're doing it. We can never do these things and then say, God, look, I deserve better. That's not how we read these. How do we read these as we hop into them? Here is how you read these. Here is how you unpack these. What Jesus is doing is he's taking a crowd He is taking his disciples, people to whom he has just preached the message of repentance, a big crowd that has just gathered around them, and he looks at them and he sees, all right, I know some of you are on board. I know some of you have changed lives, but I also know some of you are just following me for the blessing of the healing, the blessing of the food, or or you're just curious to see what I will say next. For you who have followed me, For those of you whose lives and hearts have changed, you already have entered a life and a realm of blessedness, and I want you to see that. To the rest, he says, this is also an invitation to you. There is blessing to be held out, but there is a reckoning you will have to have. As we consider that, as we look at this way of reading and understanding the Beatitudes, let's hop in with the most unoriginal sermon outline I've ever come up with. It's three points, and what are the three points? Blessed are the poor in spirit, (laughs) blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. Let's hop in. Let's look at this first one. Let's look at blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's look at this first mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say there in verse 2? He says this, excuse me, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's unpack this together. When Jesus says poor in spirit, what's he saying? He's talking about spiritual bankruptcy. In fact, let me reword the the beatitude this way. I think we can look at it from different angles and get some of the contours of what Jesus is saying. He might as well be saying, blessed is the man who feels the weight of his sin. Blessed is the woman who sees that she cannot save herself. Blessed is the man who sees that he has no leverage with God. Blessed is the woman who stands in God's light and sees that she has need of a Savior's help. Blessed is the one who looks to Jesus and Jesus alone. In fact, let's illustrate this. Let's illustrate this. We really have to reckon with this poor in spirit. Do you remember the story of the prodigal sons, the older brother and the younger brother? What a metaphor in the younger brother for poor in spirit. Do you remember the younger son? The younger brother, the one who squandered his father's inheritance, who wasted away, who fritted it away? Do you remember him as he tends to pigs, feeding the slop into the trough and saying, the pigs are eating better than I am. He sees his poverty and says, what am I doing? My father's servants eat so much better than this. What, why am I here? What am I doing? I'll go home and see if I can at least live as a hired hand. 
This is a son who sees his poverty. This is a son who realizes he has no claim on his father, but he heads home anyways. His plan, his only hope, the only way that he will be saved is to fling himself on his father's mercy, kindness, and potential for forgiveness. This is a picture of who we are before God the Father. This is a picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. This is the person. This is the one that Jesus Christ calls blessed. Isn't that counterintuitive? But this is the one. This is the one whom the father runs to. This is the one whom the father dresses in his best robes. This is the one for whom the father puts on the ring, the sign of his approval, the ancient credit card. This is the one for whom the father throws a great feast. Oh, Grace, this is good news. Do you see it as good news? When he makes you aware of your spiritual poverty, the Father is opening his heart to you. When you see your spiritual poverty, you cannot help but cry out to him because you have nowhere else to go. When you stop trying to hide that deep hidden thing and you bring it into his light, when you stop downplaying, rationalizing, or minimizing, and you throw, himself upon, throw yourself upon his mercy, when you stop trying to white-knuckle life's problems and fix them yourself, and you go to him and you tell him, I need you, when you stop telling God with a shaking fist, I don't deserve this, I deserve better, and you go, whoa, 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 I do deserve this. I actually deserve worse. When we come to that position, then the gates of the kingdom of heaven are open to us. And good news, it's not just open, it becomes yours. You get all the riches of the kingdom. Think about it this way. If there's a mechanism that says, oh man, as Jesus makes me poor in spirit, I understand that I have his kingdom. Think about the freedom that this gives you. Think about the incredible freedom that this gives you, right? We try so hard to manage our images, don't we? I'm guilty of this. We want people to see our best foot forward, and we try so hard to resist confronting the things that are off or undone in our lives. We play whack-a-mole with life's problems, right? It pops up, and we try to hit it as quickly as we can before anyone else sees it. We try to drown our sorrows, our worries, our self-inflicted wounds in vacations, in hobbies, or in busyness, but they're there. They're always there under the surface. They're always there like a little pebble in our shoes. Jesus' promise of blessedness is this. It is this. Own it. Own it. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. I will take it from you. I can shoulder it. I'll make you aware of it only so I can draw you deeper into my kingdom. Here, here, here. He says, I want you to become more and more aware of this spiritual poverty, not to be mean, not to be condemning, not to be judging. No, not at all. But so that you can become more and more aware of how deeply accepted and deeply loved you are. Jesus says, I want your burdens. I want your failures. I want your shame. He says, I want your tears. He says, I want it all. Why? 
because my kingdom and my kingdom alone is powerful enough to zap it. It's powerful enough to melt it. It's powerful enough to soften it. It is powerful enough to wipe it away, to wash it away. It breaks the power of sin. It zaps the taint that you feel. Jesus says, my kingdom is yours. Do you see the freedom that you have? Do you see how you can go to him? You can go to him with anything. Are you getting this? Isn't this glorious? Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this motivating? Do you see your Savior's character? Do you see his gentleness? Do you see his great love for you? Do you see his desire for you? Oh, we stuff things deep down because we think that God will reject us, or even worse, other people will reject us. But here's the truth. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Give it to me. Do you remember all those people I healed in chapter four last week? Guess what he says? He says, I will do that for you too. Try me. Grace, when you take your poverty to the Savior, he does not reject you. He gives you more of himself. This is so counterintuitive, but it is so helpful. I hope you see how much he loves you. I hope you see how you already sit in a blessed state when you become his disciple grace. How do we live? How do we live in light of this blessedness? Please do not resist the Holy Spirit's conviction. Oh, he's going to send a little needle prick to the heart. Please pay attention. What he is doing is he is bubbling up that poverty to the surface so he can skim it off and show you how much more blessed you are. Lean into his conviction. I dare you to even try seeking it out. Ask for it. Why? Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs really is the kingdom of heaven. That's just one of the hallmarks, one of the characteristics of being a disciple. That, what's the second one? The blessedness gets better. What's the second one? It is this. It is this. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a logical progression here, right? Like, like if we come into Jesus's kingdom because, and we continue to see our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy, it's a little unsettling. Like we feel a feel, we feel something, right? And when we feel that thing, when we feel that offness, that awkwardness, it causes us to grieve. It causes us to mourn. When we see spiritual poverty in us, it causes us to mourn. But we also see spiritual poverty in our loved ones. We see where their lives are not aligned. We see where this world as a whole is not aligned. And it causes us to mourn. And there's a good, good word Jesus speaks into our mourning. Let's explore this. Let's unpack this. First, Jesus doesn't just awaken us to our spiritual poverty. He causes us to mourn it, to grieve it, to lament it. When the Holy Spirit convicts us that we are poor in spirit, it actually bothers us. It can be a little uncomfortable and unsettling. It causes us grief. It causes us sorrow. We mourn and we lament that it is there. We feel it. But guess what? There's good news in that awkward feeling. And that good news is this. It is a sign that you are on the path of discipleship. It is a sign that you already are in a blessed state. You already are on his path. 
I even know someone who's going through this. They said, please, please talk about it. It's totally okay. If it helps other people, I want them to hear this. I was talking to a young lady recently, and she said, I'm seeing real change in my life. I see that Jesus is growing me. It's such a good thing. But I'm frustrated, Pastor John. I, 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 I don't like it. Oh, yeah, why? It's not fast enough. <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> I want it gone, and I want it gone yesterday. Can any of you relate to that? Oh, man, there are things in my life that I wish God would just, you know, zap like that. She's frustrated. She wants to know why this progress can sometimes take so long. Oh, man, I could hear the frustration in her voice. I could hear the sorrow. I could hear the impatience. And I was like, oh, man, oh, man, sister, sister, you are mourning. You are doing kingdom mourning. This is gospel mourning. You're lamenting where you're at. Oh, man, that's good. But here's another way. Here's another way that we will mourn as we enter into the kingdom. You mourn when you see a loved one in spiritual poverty. Isn't that true? Don't we all have people here today that we wish were here? Don't we all have people here today that are causing this pain? Don't we all have loved ones where it's like, what are you doing? Why, why, why this? I, oh no, oh no. The direction of their life hurts us. Their flippancy towards Jesus hurts us. Their nonchalant attitude towards other people hurts us. Their self-absorption hurts us. You see that there is a better blessedness for them in Jesus Christ, and you see how their life would just get better if they would enter in and become poor in spirit. But instead, what do we see? We get a front row seat to them as their life self-destructs. We have to watch as we see something else reigning over their hearts other than Jesus. This brings hurt. This brings pain. And so we mourn. We mourn. Here's another way that we mourn. It doesn't even have to be someone that we know, right? We can just see people who are not aligned with Jesus' kingdom. And we can lament. We can mourn. We feel sorrow, right? There's hang gliders carrying terrorists into concerts in Israel. There's a veteran in Maine who goes on a rampage. We mourn these things. In fact, King David gives such a good voice to what we're feeling when we feel rage, when we feel sorrow, when we feel disoriented. Go with me to Psalm 119, verse 136. Look at what King David says there. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Have you ever known that? Have you ever felt that for another person? Do you feel that for someone in your life right now? I think we all carry this pain. We all carry this sense of mourning. But there's another way. There's another way that we mourn. What is that other way that we mourn? It's when we come into contact with a world that's just haywire. This world does not work right, and we see that the world itself is not in alignment with Jesus' kingdom, and it causes us pain. Some of us are, are dealing with ailing parents. Some of us are dealing with ailing health. Some of us are, are dealing with children who are in pain, and we have to look at them and say, I wish I could take this off of you, but I can't, and that causes pain. There's some times where we lose work or we lose our job or our hours goes down, and it's through no fault of our own. 
Excuse me. What is our response? Our response is to mourn because this world is not fully aligned with Jesus' kingdom, with Jesus' reign. Not yet. Whatever the case, Grace Church will know mourning in this world. But good news, good news, Jesus says, when we know this mourning, we will also know comfort. We will know comfort. We walk the blessed path of Jesus Christ where there is comfort in the present, there is comfort down the road in the future, and there is an ultimate consolation waiting for us when Jesus returns. I do not know when he will bring you comfort. I've got to be honest. I do not know how he will bring you comfort, but I do know with rock rib certainty that he will. He will comfort you. Can we go back to that person I was telling you about, that young lady who was so frustrated that she's not making more progress in the Christian life? On that phone call, we were able to talk, and she was able to see that God is actually active in her life. God is working in her life. The progress is small, but it's not nothing. It is a sign, it is symbolic that he is working on her. He is growing her. That means that she is not cast out, no far from it. She is not forsaken. She is anything but. No, 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 that growth, that progress, that awkwardness she feels is a sign that her father in heaven is with her. He is loving her. He is polishing her. He is giving her what she can handle one day at a time, and she can rest knowing that he who completed, or excuse me, he who began a good work in her will see it through to completion. That is a comfort for her in the now, and that should comfort you in the present. Jesus is active in your life in ways that you do not even know. But there's another aspect to Jesus' promise, that when you mourn, you will be comforted. You see, there is a day. There is a day that is coming. There is a day coming when he will return, and all will be well. I will never have to take another phone call. This isn't like a pity thing. I will never have to take another phone call that says, my wife just died. What do I do? I will never have to take another phone call that says, the diagnosis came in. Where is God in this? The day is coming where he will wipe away every tear for you. He will bring you comfort. He will console you. You will dwell with him. You will see that he is yours and you are his. Oh, Grace, this is a marvelous blessing. It is a blessing that is as real as these tears. Do you rest in that? Do you see that? Do you see that you can go to him and you can seek him in the worst of your situations? He is for you. He is with you. He is comforting you. He is there. Oh, what a beautiful blessing. What a wonderful thing to know. You can build your life around this. That day is coming. Better days are always on your horizon, and you can take that to the bank. When you mourn, when the Spirit convicts you and it causes you to mourn, when you see that you're poor in spirit and it causes you to mourn, Turn to Jesus. Turn to him and no comfort. It is there. Take your sorrows to him. Why? Because he is a powerful savior and he is a faithful savior and you will feel the weight of these words. Blessed are those who mourn. 
for you really will be comforted. Amen. What's the third thing that we see? What's the third hallmark of a disciple? It is this, it is this, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Oh, we've got to unpack this one. We've got to unpack this one. Why? Because the progression continues. Remember how we said when you're poor in spirit, you feel the weight. And when you feel the weight, it causes you to mourn. Well, when you see the poverty, when you're feeling the weight and you know you and God are like this and he wants to do this, what happens? You over here lose your ground for boasting. You lose your self-righteousness. You see that you have nothing to stand on. When you are completely thrown onto him, you can't stand here. You can never be judgy, right? We have nothing. We have nothing. And that right there makes us meek. Oh, we've got to understand meekness. There's a lot of confusion around meekness. What is meekness, Grace? What is it? How would you define meekness? How about this? How about this? The Greek word here used for meekness actually means a tamed wild animal. That's interesting. How are we going to thread those two needles, right? A wild tamed animal. Think about a horse. I used to work with horses. I loved working with horses. No, I'm not God's gift to horses. I have seen many a horse broken but still try to bite me. <laughs> the power in those jaws is still there. I have seen broken, obedient, gentle horses still kick. And does that kick hurt? I don't know. It didn't land, and I am so glad that it did not land. But there is power in those hindquarters. The power is still there, but it is tamed. It is under submission. It is under control. This is meekness being humbled and tamed by the Holy Spirit. That means that meekness is not, say it, meekness can never be considered weakness. Our culture gets this so wrong. It gets it so wrong. No, no, no. What does it mean to be meek? Jesus was meek. Did Jesus have a forceful personality? He said, repent, right? Like he didn't try to nice people into the kingdom, right? He's bold. He's forceful. He's a man you did not want to mess with, but is Jesus still meek? Yes, this powerful savior was meek. When you are meek, your power is 100%. Your strength, your gifts are 100% under God's controlling, guiding hand. You are in his service. You are in his service as a tool and as an instrument. You are completely moldable by him. You accept that your circumstances that you are in, he's got something for you and he's got something for someone else. This is what it means to be meek. Look at how the gospel produces meekness in us. When we understand this, it totally makes sense. It has to be a hallmark of a disciple of Jesus. When we see our spiritual debt to the Lord, when we come into his presence seeing our poverty, what should we expect from him? Judgment. Judgment. But is that what you got? No, we get a father. We get a father. We get mercy. We get grace. We get forgiveness. We were put on the path of blessing as having God as a father. And why? Because Jesus Christ used his considerable power to live for us, 
to die for us and to rise again for us. Oh, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ meekly submitted to the Father's plan and used his power to defeat our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And when you come to faith in Christ, when he makes you a disciple, look at what you get. You will inherit the earth. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we will reign with him one day on high. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul chides the Corinthians for suing each other, he says, don't you know that one day you will judge angels? Do you see your high exalted state? We get to co-rule and co-reign with Jesus. We get to judge alongside him. He trusts you with that. He gives you that high station. Oh, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, why will we be elevated so high? Not because we earned it. Why will we inherit the new heavens and the earth? It is because in meekness he lowered himself for you. Do you see your path in Christ? Do you see that there is a better always ahead? Do you see that one day you will inherit the earth? Do you see this glorious gift? You are always headed towards an amazing future regardless of your present circumstances. When this man comes along and makes you his disciple, how can you not live like him, right? I mean, think about it. We should naturally exude meekness. How can one who has received grace not extend grace? How can one who is forgiven not extend forgiveness? How can one who has received mercy not extend mercy? How can one who has been so served not go out and serve others? Jesus shows us the very heart of meekness. How can we not want to live like him? This has to be a hallmark of his people. Meekness must flow from our lives. Where is this meekness? Where is it? Where is it bubbling up? Where is it showing up in your life? Where do you need to be encouraged and hear, yeah, that's Jesus working in you? This meekness is so practical. Can I just give you one example of how practical it is? I wish I could preach a whole sermon on this. Can I give you one example? Does anybody wrestle with anger? Do not raise your hand. <laughs> Does anyone wrestle with anger or temper? Watch how meekness is the antidote. If we were spared God's wrath because Jesus meekly absorbed that wrath for us, then when someone is mad at you, you too can absorb their fury and not return their wrath. Stop right there. I am talking about within reason. I am not talking about situations where we need to call the cops. Do not hear what I am not saying. No, I'm talking about in everyday life. If Jesus Christ absorbed wrath on our behalf, we can keep, oh man, we can keep arguments from escalating by doing the very same thing. We have the strength, we have the reserves, we have the motivation to in meekness say, hold on, I need to not think about myself here, I need to lower myself or this thing's gonna blow up. Do you see how meekness can protect you from getting sucked into the other person's vortex and saying or doing something that you're gonna regret later? Do you see how meekness keeps you from fuming and steaming and doing what I do, which is plotting out revenge in your mind, even if you're never going to enact it. Anyone guilty? All those things I should have said, could have said, and the next time I talk to them, I'm going to say this. Meekness protects you 
from that. Jesus's kingdom meekness means you can let the Lord deal with that person and trust that one way or another, he will. That is just one way meekness illuminates and delivers the blessed life. Oh, Grace, the next time you're getting it from someone, you can remember these words. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's close here. When we are brought into Jesus' kingdom, we are getting a new understanding of what it means to live the good life, what it means to live the blessed life. There is a new path. There is a new perspective There are new instincts that mark us, and we've seen three of those today, poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness. I hope you see how they're connected. When I see that I am poor in spirit, I feel it and I mourn, and when I see my my cause for mourning, I have no grounds for boasting, therefore I become meek. But I also hope you see how these three things are all a part of one path towards blessing. When we see that we are poor in spirit, we know blessing because we possess Jesus' kingdom. And we say that gives us a freedom, a freedom to own, a freedom to confess, a freedom to see us as God sees us, and to go to him and say, please take this, and to trust and rest that as you do that, you are getting more of his kingdom. That makes us want to lean into the Holy Spirit's conviction. When we mourn, the second one, we know blessedness because we know comfort. We have said that that makes us want to take our sorrows to him. Finally, we said we are made meek in the gospel because we are humbled by the high station of inheriting the earth and who we will be when Jesus returns. And we see that it's a station that we did not deserve, we did not earn. We saw that this helps us in the everyday life, specifically with respect towards our anger. I'm getting there, little one. A final word. Let us not forget the very thing which secured this path of blessedness for us, what secured the true and better blessed path or good path. It is this. Jesus Christ, the one who was rich in spirit, became poor in spirit for you and I. He did that by taking our sin on his shoulders. Jesus Christ, the one who knew the comforts of heaven, but came to mourn over the very people who rejected him. Jesus Christ is the one who is high and exalted, yet in meekness he lowered himself by coming to earth, and he lowered himself in meekness again by going to the cross. He died for us, and now he has made this path of blessedness available to us, and he has even brought us into it. Let us look to him, and we will live out these hallmarks. We will naturally produce them, and we will even seek to cultivate them in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you are the source, you are the author of blessing. Oh, Father, you give us that which we do not deserve. And Father, you secure it such that it could never be taken away. Oh, Father God, help us to reflect on your goodness, your kindness to us in the gospel and how it really does lay out for us a better, blessed path. We love you, Father, and we praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. Amen.